This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number 28 of the series, The Form of Sound Words. We are considering at this meeting the second part of the subject under the heading of the mystery. Now last time we met together we were considering the mystery of Ephesians chapter 3. But associated with that revelation is the mystery of Christ. Now, you may say, well, you're making distinctions, and perhaps there isn't any. So, will you look at Ephesians 3 a little more carefully and see whether there isn't a distinction intended between the mystery, which has to do with your calling, and Christ, which has to do with his place in connection with it. Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul opens the, this chapter by calling himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, and then apparently stops in order to explain what he means by such a title. He says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. So the <coughs> mystery, whatever it is, was made known to the Apostle Paul by revelation. And if we take those words to mean what they intend, it seems to suggest that he didn't find it by studying the prophecy of Daniel or the Old Testament or any other part of the book. It was revealed to him. Something that was made a subject of revelation. Well now, when anybody makes a claim like that, you've either got to take their word for, for it and that's the end of it, or they can submit to you some way whereby you can test them. Shall I illustrate it by one that you know so well? When our Saviour, at the course of his ministry, reached a point when it was necessary for him to manifest his power in the spiritual world as well as in the physical, they brought before him a man sick of the palsy and instead of saying to the man, walk, take up thy bed and walk, he said to him, thy son, my son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, they said, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Now he said, all right. Now, if after I've said what you call blasphemy, I now say to the man sick of the palsy, take up thy bed and walk, and he does, then God has set to his seal that I do forgive sins, and I'm, I have this dominion in the spiritual world. And he did. You see, even Christ had to see that it would be easy for a deceiver to say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, I could say that from this pulpit, couldn't I? You may not believe it, but how could you disprove it? But if I subsequently could perform a most outstanding miracle immediately I make that claim, then either God is compromising himself by apparently endorsing a lie, or what I say is true. So the Apostle says, I know I'm making a great claim that to me, by revelation, this calling, which is dominated by the word mystery, has been made known. Now then, he said, As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So now he says, test me. Now, where can you read anything that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians? There isn't another epistle written to them. There is nothing in existence that he wrote to them. But don't you see, if you were writing to someone a letter, and it was one of those that went page after page after page of letter, 
And when you got, say, to page six, you said, now, if you refer to what I said just earlier, people wouldn't put the letter down and go hunting all over the house for some letter that doesn't exist. They'd just turn to what was said. Oh, yes, I see. So shall we look and see whether he has said something in this very epistle that no other writer in the New Testament has put his finger on. Because, you see, if you look at this chart, I've tried to set it out, two parts. On this side, the mystery of Christ. On that side, the mystery. On that side, we are told it was hid in God and hidden from the generations and only now revealed. And it was exclusive unto me. Less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should make it known. That's exclusive. And here we have the mystery was made known, but not exclusive to the Apostle Paul. He says, I've got a fuller knowledge of it, because he says, unto me, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. You see, there's a comparison there. If he had meant to say that it was never made known unto them before, he spoiled it by saying, it's made known unto me, in a sense that it was never made known unto them. Well, now you see, all the workings of God, all the callings of God, and the revelations of God, are focused in the person of Christ. So that right from the beginning of the Bible, we have Christ. Even the very first verse, we wouldn't see it when we first read Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when we come to the last book in the Bible, and of course you've had a big education by the time you've read right through the Bible to get to the book of the Revelation. It says in chapter 3 that Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. And it says so in Colossians when it says he is the beginning, the first born from the dead. He's the beginning. So that was a revelation of the mystery, the mystery, a secret of Christ. And then in Genesis 3 when sin had come into the world there's another revelation of the secret of Christ. I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, the two seeds, which go right through the Bible. And so there comes a time when there's another secret revealed, and that is the secret of the, of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The fact that the, that the sowing of the seed was rather destroyed and evil was growing and got mixed up, like the parables of Matthew 13. Then you get the secrets of the blindness of Israel. You get the mystery of godliness. You, you get any amount, you see, so they must have been mixed up. So we have possibility here that he says, now if you'll only see what I said, with no other person has ever said in the Bible about the mystery of Christ, then you may be prepared to believe what I tell you, that there is something I've got to say to you that nobody else has said either. So would you look back? Now we can't spend all the time this afternoon pretending we don't know where to look and keep on arguing the point all through this epistle till at last we find it, because we'll find it at the end of chapter 1. He speaks about the exaltation of Christ. Uh, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him with his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
He has put all things under his feet. Now the Apostle borrowed those words from Psalm 8. He has put all things under his feet. Do you remember when we read Psalm 8 that it defines what they were? Sheep and oxen, fowl of the air. There's no sheep and oxen here. Always says, I've been let into the secret of Christ. That Psalm 8 looked back to Adam, but it looks on to Christ. And so when it says all things are under his feet, when it speaks of Adam, it speaks of sheep and oxen. But when it says all things are under his feet, and it speaks of Christ, oh, it speaks of principality and power. Now he said, you won't find it anywhere else. Will you turn to Hebrews chapter 2? And you'll find the same argument there. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. The world to come, not the past world, is he. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little, or for a little, as the margin tells you, lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour and did set him over the works of thy hands, and then again, not a reference to sheep or oxen, notice it, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That's the apostle writing again, nobody else has said that, you see. And for the third time, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there you will have three times this apostle has given that explanation of Psalm 8 and nobody else in the whole round world of God has said so. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. Here he goes again. The same mm-hmm. apostle with the same text. But when he put, he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, to put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So there you've got, 1 Corinthians takes you right to the end, Hebrews takes you to the beginning of the heavenly calling in Hebrews. Ephesians takes you to the far above all position which belongs to this. And Christ is associated with each one of them. Head in the church and the one who is the priest after the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews and the voluntarily subjected son when he hands the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. That's Christ, you see, in each one of those. So we come back to Ephesians chapter 3. And we say to ourselves, yes, that's true. In other ages, the mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It wasn't made known to them in the same sense that it is made known now. Well, then he says, after that, verse 8, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the 
unsearchable riches of Christ. Does he mean what he says? If he means what he says, he's going to tell you something that nobody has ever seen before, because if other people have said the same thing, they're not unsearchable. Somebody could challenge him and say, well, I could see that. But he's challenging you. He says, where can you find the idea that sheep and oxen suddenly resolve themselves into a foreshadowing of such a dominion that even God himself is the only one who is outside of it? So that's the extraordinary claim of this apostle. Now I think we'd better look back at Psalm 8 because there's a, a feature there which uh, you might be interested enough to investigate for yourselves if you can. First of all, you'll notice that over a quite a number of these psalms there are little headings. Now it says here, Psalm 8. To the chief musician upon Gittith a psalm of David. Then it hasn't got anything at the bottom of it, at, at the end of verse 9, it simply goes straight on to Psalm 9. The next psalm has a heading, to the chief musician upon Muslaban, a psalm of David, and so on. Well now, if, I'm not going to turn to the passage, but if in your leisure, you look at the third chapter of the prophet Habakkuk, you will see that a psalm starts off with a superscription, then there's the whole psalm, then there's the subscription, the little bit at the end, so that if you were going to put down a lot of psalms, it would go a little bit, the psalm, a little bit, a little bit, the psalm, a little bit, a, see? Then if you cut them up, and you cut them wrong, you could cut the subscription that belongs to this psalm and stick it onto the top of that one. That's what they've done. The words that come over Psalm 9 upon Muslaban belong to Psalm 8. So we've now got the superscription of Psalm 8 to the chief musician upon Gittith and we've got the subscription of Psalm 8 to the chief musician upon Muslaban. What do you say, what's Muslaban mean? Well, first of all, we've got to remove the word upon because the word upon is translating two Hebrew word, two Hebrew letters, A and L, Al, upon. It does mean upon, but not in this case. Because they've chopped a word up, Almuth. The word is Almuth. And if you will look at Psalm, I think it is 45, you'll see that another attempt has been made on this peculiar construction. It says, Psalm 45, to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, a, a song upon Almuth. You see, again we've got the expression, Almuth. And then there's another psalm which ends up by saying, uh, this is our God, even unto death. And the word Muth is the word death, but that's the bit that belongs to the other psalm. It's very difficult to explain without diagrams, isn't it? So let's come back to Psalm 8 and have another look. You know that the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, was in the possession of the people of Israel for about 300 years before Christ. 
Now those who have have access to that, you will see written by the side of the psalm, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, these words. The secrets, oh the Greek words of course, the secrets of the Son. They put it there. Anybody who can read it can see for themselves that right back before Christ, it was known that Psalm 8 contained the secrets of the Son. And the word secret and the word mystery are very parallel. And Paul says, I have seen what the secrets of the Son comprise. I'm telling you that the sheep and the oxen under Adam was a picture of the universal dominion of the Christ. Isn't it a pity? You've got to go all this way around to explain the thing which if they hadn't cut it up and altered it, see, Alamoth, not upon Moth Laban, but Alamoth Laban is the secrets of the sun. And so interpreted by those who read the original. Well, that's one feature that we must distinguish between the mystery itself, which is your relationship to the church of the one body and this high calling, and Christ, who is revealed as the head over all things and the fullness in connection with this calling too. Well then, another feature uh, that we must um, mention, go into a little bit, was left over from last time, and that is, on this chart, I've got the words at the top there, the word low army. History ceases, mystery begins, and then the word low army. Now, the words low army are just the English letters of two Hebrew words. Low is the word for not. Am is the word for people. You remember that uh, Abraham's name was changed. Abraham, father of many nations. And Mi, what is almost equivalent to My. So, low army is not my people. Well, when they are not my people, there must come a gap. And when there comes a gap, God has filled it. And what he's filled it with is the calling that you and I belong to. But let's go back now to the prophet Hosea, where this low army condition is a subject of revelation. Now, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets that come after Ezekiel and Daniel. Verse 2 of Hosea, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and the children of whoredoms. For the land hath committed great whoredom in departing from the Lord. This is not very savoury words, but it's speaking about a dreadful departure on the part of the children of Israel from their God. And Hosea was not merely going to be told to speak things, he was going to be told to endure things, so that he could set it forth in his own life, before the people of Israel, what was happening. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and they had a son, and they called his name Jezreel. Well, then he had another son, and his name was, uh, a daughter, in verse 6, and her name was Lo-Rama, that means not having obtained mercy. And then a third son, verse 9, a third child in verse 9, called his name Lo-Ami, 
for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. So, here is a prophecy telling you that a period was coming when the children of Israel would be repudiated by God, when they should not be called his people, and he would not be called their God. Now, the name of God in these scriptures, up to a certain point, is the God of Abraham. But you'll never find the God of Abraham mentioned in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and those. No. When he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he said the gospel was to the Jew first. So they were still God's people. When our Saviour came according to the gospel, according to Matthew, he said, go not into the way of the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he prayed for them on the cross, and it was held back. And he told them once again to tarry at Jerusalem, till they were endured from power on high. And then Peter spoke to the people of Israel, ye men of Israel, brethren. That's Peter. And then there came a time when it was evident that they were not repenting and not believing. And ultimately, at the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, they got their last opportunity meeting together to consider the teaching of Scripture, the Apostle quoted Isaiah 6 and said, The salvation of God descended to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And the people of Israel went into their present blindness and they're still there as a nation. Lo, army, not my people. Now in this Hosea, we're told that they're coming back again. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? So in chapter 2, It says in verse 18, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the powers of heaven, with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto thee forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto thee in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto thee in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow. Now the word Jezreel means to scatter, or to sow. And scattering and sowing were almost equivalent, and even today, churches, will stand, the congregations will stand up and sing, we plough the fields and scatter, although outside in the farms they're using machinery to do it. So he's playing on the word, scatter, I'll scatter you in judgment, but I'll sow you in blessing. And then he says, I will have mercy upon her that was not obtained mercy, that's the second name, Lodoama, and I will say to them that were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. So they're coming back again. But now the third chapter gives you an indication about the length of time and what sort of condition they're going to be while the present dispensation of the mystery is running its course and Israel are blind and outside. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of a friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine, so he's got to go through it again, this man. So I bought her 
Now that means to say she had been taken in either captivity or she had been sold because of uh, this condition in which she was in. But in any case, he had to buy her back. And I said unto her, Thou should abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. So here was a, a period of blank. She was to be segregated, and the husband said, I will wait too. And the explanation now follows in the next two verses. For, just as this woman is treated like that, and you are waiting like that, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a key. That's true today, isn't it? Without a king. And without a prince. Why does it say twice? Well, no king given by God. And no prince raised up by man. One of the awful things in connection with the people of Israel at this present period is this. That when a war breaks out, and England has to go to war with Germany or Russia or wherever it might be, some of the Jewish people in this country have to join the army and some of the Jewish people in that country have to join the army and fight one another. That's the condition. They have no king given by God. They have no prince to rule them as a people. They're scattered. And the next condition was this. They should be without a sacrifice. And if you know anything about the Jewish ritual, they have to confess that that's the one thing that's absent, the one essential thing that's absent in their service. Jerusalem was the place where the sacrifices were all day to be offered and I'm not sure whether it would be permissible by the law of this land for sacrifices to be offered by any worshippers today. And so certain things are done to ask God to accept the blood they lose by fasting in lieu of the sacrifice they ought to offer without a sacrifice. But on the other hand, the one thing you cannot charge Israel with today is idolatry. The one thing they are not chargeable with is having an image. They won't have it in any shape or form. So they're negative, you see. And then finally, they're without an ephod. And the ephod is the clothing of the priest. If you went to a synagogue, the most important man in the synagogue is the reader. If a priest is there in the synagogue, he's got very little to do. He takes the redemption money when a child is brought to the synagogue or he lifts his fingers like that and pronounces the high priest's blessing. I often feel as I pass through some poor districts. How sad for Israel. I see over the signboard of a shop the name Cohen rag and bone merchant. Cohen is the word priest. The Cohens of Israel have no work to do. Now there's Israel, stagnant, waiting like that. Waiting like that. And without teraphim, there's a question as to what the teraphim mean. But as far as I've been able to investigate, it goes back to the name Terah. If you go to the genealogy of the book of Genesis, you won't find the genealogy of Abraham. You'll find it's the genealogy of Terah, his father, and Abraham's in it. And the teraphim appear to be the genealogical tables 
which are so important to Israel. You ask any one of Israel today to give you a proof of what tribe they belong to. They can only guess. They don't know. All those records are gone. They're without terrifin. They only know that they're Jews and that's all. Or that they're Israel and that's all. But as to any genealogy that proves their case, no. Well, that's the position of Israel, you see. And then it says, afterward, shall the children of Israel return. Have they returned yet? Not yet. So we're living in the days of Israel's blindness. Israel's blindness was future when Paul wrote Romans 11. It was coming, it was very near. It descended upon them when we reached the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. It started then, and it hasn't been lifted yet, for they've not returned yet. They may be on their way. And this present dispensation of the mystery fits in the period when history has gone so far as Israel are concerned. And with the mystery has been brought in a new revelation concerning the mystery of Christ. He has to be brought in, each calling, so that each one shall... We don't speak of Christ as king. We don't speak of Christ as priest. Now that upsets some people. Oh, they say that's shocking. Well, I didn't write the New Testament, friend. I'm only telling you. If you read the epistle to the Hebrews, there's hardly a page but what you're reading about the priesthood. But he's writing to Hebrews. One epistle, filled with references to the priesthood. And 13 epistles, with not a single reference from one end of the epistles to the other. Never again. Christ is head to us. And head includes kingship and priesthood and all the others put together. We lost nothing. But the terms are changed. So now we have, afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord, their God. Seek the Lord, their God. See, I will not be your God. Now they're going to seek the Lord, their God. And David, their king. Now you go to Old Testament prophecy and you find that God says, I will raise up my servant David and he should be king. He's going to have a, a, a position as a representative of Christ in connection with kingship which he had in prospect in the beginning. David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, is there any hint anywhere or in this prophecy as to how long the interval will be? Well, you may not agree with me over this, but turn to chapter 6. Here is a call to return. So, this is now the moment when they're going to return to return unto the Lord and David their king. Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days, now what two days? What's the prophet mean when he says after two days? What two days? Does he mean after Monday and Tuesday? Well, you say, no, that's idiotic. Well, I'm asking. What two days? Don't you see, in prophecy, a day doesn't represent 24 hours. There's the day of the Lord, which lasts a thousand years. The book of the Revelation speaks of the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord lasts a thousand years. Well, did you see, after two days, 
might be after 2,000 years. And Israel had been blinded, creeping on to the 2,000 years, friends. We're 1962 now. So we're very near to the end of Friday evening, or Saturday evening, whichever way you reckon it. The week's getting near to an end. The 2,000 years are running out. And when that runs out, they'll return. The mystery of God shall be finished. Your calling and mine will be concluded. And God will then take up this people and the work of prophecy will go on to its fulfillment. After two days, will he revive us? In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And then at the end of this Hosea, you find them coming back and blessed. Again, the word return. In verse four, in chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord, and say to him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. They are being given the very words to say when they go back to the Lord. And the very words for them to say are implanted in Isaiah 53. When they look upon him whom they pierced, they will say, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. See, take with your words. Go back with these to the Lord. Receive us graciously. So will he rend- we will render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. That's referring to the Assyrians. We will not ride upon horses like they trusted to Egypt. Neither will we any more say to the work of our hands, Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. Then comes the reply, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from them. I will be as the dew unto Israel. And the dew in Palestine is not the dew that we know in this country. It has been translated by one, the summer sea night mist. That when the evening comes, then there rolls in from the sea a great mist. And it's to that that the psalmist refers when he says, it is like the dew that falls on Mount Zion and Mount Hermon. No, when this comes rolling in from the sea, that it doesn't say, oh, well, I won't have anything to do with you, I'll only go to Judah, I'll only go to Israel. No, it envelops them both and joins them up, dwelling together in unity. So it says here, I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily, and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. And so we've got the restoration of this people. Well, that's been two aspects of the teaching that we've had before us, and I hope that it will start you off on your own investigations to search and see whether these things are so. The mystery of Christ must not be confused with the mystery of the kingdom or the mystery of the church or the mystery of the uh, blindness of Israel. It means the mystery concerning the person of Christ himself. And the Apostle Paul claims to have received the mystery and shares it with none. But he says, I also claim to have an aspect of the mystery of Christ which others didn't have as I've got it now. And then he refers to you to what he's written before and you find 
that Psalm 8 is quoted by him three times and nobody else in the New Testament quotes those words. And he says, I've shown you that Adam's dominion over the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beast of the field, I've shown you that in the mind of God, that was a picture of the dominion that is to be given to the Son of God. When all things, with one exception, fancy, all things in the whole universe, with one exception, that is to say the Father himself, shall be under his feet, and God all in all. Well, when that day comes, many distinctions may be then resolved. Or they may continue, because one star differs from another star, even in glory. We can leave that to be worked out by God himself when the time comes. But I trust, you've seen enough to make it worthwhile to observe the things that differ, and not jump to conclusions, because it happens to say the mystery twice over, it's referring to the same thing and to realise that without the revelation of the mystery of Christ, there would be no revelation of the mystery concerning your blessing, for your blessings are entirely involved in the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the session, and the exaltation of the Son of God.